Jim Joyce. We did it, man. We fought through An- this week. Another week. Another week. <laughs> let's see if this. Uh, it, let's see if this holds up for us. Um, I'm already in Milan uh, for okay. Frontiers Health, so super excited on this one. And I think you're coming in. Sounds like tomorrow, right? Right, right behind you. The event's already starting tonight, or? Um, no, just laying low. Come I mean, on. I'm sure there's things going on, but uh, right. I don't know. I'm getting, 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 getting a, a little old. I think. I don't know. <laughs> cool, cool. Happy Wednesday. <laughs> Happy Wednesday. Um, and and where where in the world is Jim Joyce? I am in London at the Hard Rock Hotel in London, of all places. I'm not sure how I got booked in here. <laughs> I'm not sure how I got booked in here. Someone thought it was a good idea. We're doing our, our, our pub, as you know, public company kind of earnings, you know, talking to our investors and things. So, um, so London is a great place for that. Other than the fact that the, they're a little kind of wobbly right now with trustonomics and everything going on. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) They might have a bad time to talk about investment at the moment in London, you know, (laughs) Well, listen, you know, uh, whatever goes down must go up and vice versa, right? Isn't that the thing? <laughs> this, too, this too will pass. <laughs> this too will pass. Um, let's, uh, let's let in our guest, uh, anxiously waiting, actually, I think right. in the same hotel, but I think he will have, uh, sounds like he figured out a much better lighting situation than I have because we were just texting. So, Tony. Right. Welcome, Tony. Look at that. Your light is much better. You're you're doing some crazy tricks here. <laughs> so welcome. Welcome to the shot. We've been and, and welcome. Over too. Yes, welcome. Hey to, Tony. Well, well, we've been trying. Hey, we've been trying, yeah. but you just happen to live, you know, uh, in a very non-convenient time for when we record. So exactly. That's the problem of living on the other side of the planet. <laughs> exactly. Great to see you. I feel like we all look like we look like hostages tonight with our backgrounds, right? <laughs> like we all look like <laughs> But 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 here's the positive thing on all of this. That means that we're all doing seeing each other in 3D and live, some hugging going on and on all that great <laughs> stuff. So but uh, as as you said, long overdue, Tony, welcome to the shot. And for our millions of viewers and listeners, um, take us through your life. Wherever you want to start. (laughs) Absolutely. James, great to virtually connect here. It's uh, I talk to Eugene a lot more often. Uh, Feels like, um, you know, the throughout the last four years of being separated, Eugene was probably one of the people I spoke to most frequently. So I really appreciated all that time together. Um, I've enjoyed listening and watching the shot as well. Um, So I guess, you know, I, I live in Singapore and have been there for nearly eight years. And I guess in in a nutshell, it has been a great transition for me to be based in Asia. Uh, I always, I guess the thing with life now is it's always good to talk about life and why we're in our places with family first and then get to the other stuff in life, like what we do for work. So so I'll start with that first is, uh, so uh, my wife is Malaysian by birth. And so when we found out we were in London at the time that uh, she was pregnant, that kind of shifted our focus to say, let's be close to family and parents. Yeah. And that's how we ended up in Singapore. And what was meant to be a temporary, let's go for a year and then come back to London. And then, you know, think life took its, took its own direction. And uh, we've been in Singapore since. And, um, and I can honestly say that it's one of the best experiences I could have imagined. I've lived in Asia once before. 
Um, I was born in Mexico, raised there uh, till I was age seven, and then I moved to the US for a little while, then to Japan. So I lived in Tokyo when I was growing up, and then came back and lived in the in various parts of the Western Hemisphere again. But I'd always had in mind that it'd be great to live in Asia and work in Asia at some point. Mm. And, you know, those hopes and aspirations you have in life, it was uh, good right. to see that several of them, including geography, have come to fruition. Right. You know what I, you know what I love about this intro? I think Tony is the first person on the show that truly just focused on kind of the personal journey. I think many people kind of touch on right. that, but then kind of go into the career journey. So we're going to actually get you yeah. there now, too, uh, Tony. All right. <laughs> take, take us, take us through. As, because as I know. Yeah, go ahead. As we're there. So when someone asks you, Tony, what are you or where are you from? Is it a long answer or do you, is it a short answer? Do you say uh, Mexico? So, do you say I grew up all over the world? How do you respond to that? Yeah. So my short answer is I was born in Mexico, raised there, Japan and the U.S. And now I've lived in but like my eighth country or whatever that number is now. Right. So uh, that's my short answer. And then to, to Eugene's question, I'm uh, not a retired person sitting on my <laughs> sitting chair just waiting to get on conversations with you. I actually do have other things for my daily life. And so yeah. uh, besides being a dad, which I love, um, I my, the company that I, I, I run and I work with in the healthcare space is called Taliosa. And I spend half of my time doing thought leadership or storytelling, as I prefer to tell to describe it. And the other half of <laughs> and the other half, and the other half, I'm sure this will happen again, but, you know, the connection here sucks. So I don't know where you, how far you went. And I'm the only one recording. This is the first time ever. Apologies to all. Continue. What's the other half? <laughs> so the other half is business building, where with my storytelling side, I focus on where is the future of health going? I write fiction. I have podcasts. I'm writing a nonfiction book. Um, the other half is making that future a reality. So okay. either by being an independent board director uh, or by supporting some investors on their decisions or with their portfolio companies, or by doing consulting work or advisory work on more, more ecosystem-driven projects, which I'll describe what that means, um, I get to do both halves. And, and the entrepreneur in me is, loves this because I get to storytell and I get to build. Awesome. And what, what's the, what's your what's your recent fiction? Is it a fiction book or a fiction blog or? So in 2019, I published my first fiction book, which is mm. called Comatose. Um, and so I actually, I happen to have a copy of it. I was bringing it for somebody. So this is the book. Oh, uh, awesome! So you'll see the cover has uh, Korean, Japanese, and Chinese characters on it, and a big you know thunderstorm scene. And the the fun thing is that. Um, I had UK publisher, so I got to go and do a bunch of interviews with the in, in BBC studios, including the Mothership, which is very fun. Um, and all of the book both is inspired by and written about lucid dreaming. And so lucid dreaming, for people who don't know what that is, is where you not only know that you're dreaming, but you actively control yourself in your dreams. 
And all of our kids, when we were kids, we were all able to do it. But the challenge is that as we get more into being problem solvers and, you yep. know, whether it's in school, yep. life, work, that gets you further and further away from having consistent sleep, consistent dreaming, and especially not having lucid dreaming. Right. So I've been fortunate that I've been able to keep that up. And that's how I write. I dream my stories, plot, characters, and key scenes. And I've got several books. I actually wrote the sequel to this um, during COVID. And, uh, but because of podcasting, it's now led me to my nonfiction writing right now. And so eventually right. we'll get back to publishing the next book. Okay. So the book is about, so you, you, sorry, in a, you cut, cut, I cut this, like, it's a, you dreamt this book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it sounds fantastical, but you know, if you look at the science of sleep and lucid dreaming, especially like there's uh, several Stanford, uh, and Kellogg professors who've done a lot of work around this. Actually, during um, the, the peak of uh, my involvement with Clubhouse last year, in addition to doing stuff with Dan Kendall uh, and, yep. and Eugene on mission on uh, Digital Health Today, uh, I was doing a weekly Sleep and Dreams uh, Clubhouse session. And I remember those. Having, yeah. Wow. I mean, we did like, you know, people stay on for like two and a half hours, just con like really delving into lucid dreaming and all aspects right. of it. It was, it was really fun to just hear how other people also tap into lucid dreaming for creativity. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest. I still haven't read the book. It's still in my front of the to-read shelf. Um, but one, one, one <laughs> I'm waiting the, for the audio book. I know. I'm working that's on that. It. That's it. Exactly. Thank you, Tony. Appreci appreciate you saving me on that one. Um, but I... I you can train yourself to lucid dream, right? That's like literally the only thing that I know about it. Is that yeah. is that true statement? Okay. So yes, it's a true statement with an, with a couple of ands. So the way that and because of all the stuff I've done with lucid dreaming, I've spent time with a lot of sleep scientists, read a lot of books around it, and the way I describe my my type of lucid dreaming, if I gave an analogy to runners, it's like I'm an ultra marathoner for sleep and, and dreams. Okay. So. And you don't get to be an ultra marathoner by just waking up and walking out your door. You have to train for it. Right. Yeah. And so a typical person who sleeps, you know, re regularly, maybe occasionally dreams, that's, that's like a 5K runner. Okay. So that's the gap between, you know, your right. 5K runner to ultra marathoner. There's a bunch of stuff you can do. Right. And like, like, like in, in runners and sports, if you want to enhance your, your skills, there are uh, some natural and also medicinal ways to do it. Right. Um, but you know, all the, my type of lucid dreaming is all just based on consistent practice of sleep and training and how I've taught myself to do some memory recall exercises, for example, so that I always remember my dreams from the wow. very start, which wow. that's, that's how I get all of them down. Wow. Well, I, wow. I, I know what we're going to dive deeper in on that walk to dinner tonight. Um, <laughs> but, um. You know, I, it's it's interesting, right? Because you kind of mentioned book writing, podcasting. You know, uh, on one side, it's about access to all of this for others to learn, right? Uh, but also, I mean, I think your media kind of brain goes all the way back. I mean, you and I met Tony all the way back in New York, and you still had the media well. uh, startup, right? Um, so your your kind of passion for media and storytelling started all the way back then, uh, over a decade, I think. I I can't even count anymore. Um, yeah. But maybe walk us through kind of that evolution of that, what you see that evolving, like the digital health and early days, uh, you know, 
kind of 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 the startup that you had, but also kind of fast this forward onto access to to these. Yeah, tools. I'd be happy to. You know, I think when it comes to the story of healthcare, and let me take it a little broader than the media side. Um, so when we come to the story of healthcare and where we are today, um, you know, healthcare is actually a relatively young industry in the way that we know it right now. It's actually, we've had a lot of time in healthcare, and this is part of the book that I'm writing around access uh, and health equity, is we've had a lot of time where we've done a lot of R&D and clinical research to try to understand how the body works and what are some of the interventions uh, that support the clinical community to do their work better. So like if you go back to the mid 1800s, some of the things that happened at that period of time were like anesthesia or right. learning that we should have clean water and really right. understand the sources of our water. And that was kind of the Jon Snow story of like, you know, epidemiology and understanding how, uh, you know, you should really track the environment around you. And kind of the foundation of public health really comes down to seminal moments like that, which is having a clean environment, having some basic clean uh, areas for clinicians to do their work, and then learning how to apply some big groups of changes and in, uh, in innovations, things like vaccines, uh, which came in the 19, early 1900s. Uh, and so that was all like the, the big changes that led to where we are today. But you know, Yuval Harari, um, who wrote the book Sapiens and Homo Deus, yep. was doing an interview with uh, Sam Harris. And I listen to Sam Harris podcasts a lot because I find that making sense is a really nice, he's a philosopher neuroscientist and he delves into a lot of different topics, right. uh, politics included. And in that interview, Yuval Harari made a point, which is that if you look at what the default state of human being humanity was for most of its most of our existence it's always been the default is war and the mm. you know being being at in odds with each other doesn't lend itself to let's invest into health and education right. it lends itself into let's invest into getting really good at war and so when you look at our history and where when did we as humanity really stop uh, by and large having global wars it's the end of world war ii so, so that's where things really started to be invested. The investments really started to take large scale change in both healthcare and education. So I, I go there first, Eugene, because I think that the conversation about media access, what the industry is today uh, is it kind of grounded in like, we really are talking about the industry starting from like 1950 onwards, as opposed hmm. to something. Right. That's, uh, it's, I mean, it's a it's a super interesting way to look at it. I haven't mm. thought of it that way, but it, but it is. And unfortunately, we still have wars going on now, right? Um, so let let, yep. let let's see how that slows us down, right? Because obviously, more more, more investment, unfortunately, is going to things that the world should not need. But yeah, and yet somehow yeah. it is. So to build on the, the on that in your, in your question about like how I spend my time and what I see the narrative going, and so. Um, I think you know, what I learned from being an entrepreneur, and I, I basically to catch your audience up as to who I am, I kind of gave them generalisms, but kind of the more yeah. detailed story is that I studied electrical engineering uh, at Penn, and kind of the interesting thing that uh, got me excited to be an entrepreneur was I used to build and race solo electric race cars. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and 
it was a lot of fun, you know, built a whole group of people to go and do that. And it really just taught me that I really enjoyed building. And fast forward to 1999, and I was in, um, working at, in, in Silicon Valley, supporting the work that E-Trade was doing. And that's when I knew that, like, oh, you can be a, your life can be to go build. You don't have to work mm -hmm. for a big company. Uh, and so then I, uh, I, I went back to business school. Uh, I went to, back to, to Penn, went to Wharton, and did a semester in London. And during that period, that's when I decided healthcare was the industry I wanted to be in because the ability to help people one person at a time and, or, you know, scale that up and helping with technology and whatever it might be was what really got me excited. And I knew that I could wake up in the morning and go, I'm doing something meaningful with my life. And so mm -hmm. the fits and starts of being an entrepreneur, my first company, um, although we got term sheets, didn't, we decided not to take it because it was 2001 and term sheets back then were not very good <laughs> for entrepreneurs. Yep. Um, Went to work at Pfizer for a little while in the U.S. Uh, then okay. uh, started to, did my second startup, which uh, I built and ran in New York, and that was the media startup that uh, Eugene was talking about. And after eight years of doing that, uh, moved to London, um, where uh, my my wife and I decided to start a transition and move closer to Asia. And then at that point, um, I got recruited to head up health innovation for MetLife in, across Asia Pacific, okay. which corresponded with our move here. And um, and throughout that whole experience, you know, kept in contact with some of the wonderful people that we all know and and, and really enjoy spending and inspire us. Uh, you know, group at Startup Health. Uh, you know, the some of the global groups that support entrepreneurs around the world, like Endeavor. Uh, various investors, uh, you know, human choice has always been a favorite person of mine uh, to talk to about what's happening in, this, in the industry. Um, and then when I got to Asia, I realized that all that ecosystem of support that we've enjoyed in being in the US and Western Europe didn't exist. And so I remember the time when, you know, back in 2005 and, and do it, working in a yep. healthcare startup, you had to educate everybody on what is it that you do in healthcare first, and then you talked about your company. And that was replaying right. itself and still is in Asia. And so I right. knew that the role I had to take besides my corporate function of figuring out how startups could collaborate with insurance across Asia Pacific was also to help uh, support and build out the ecosystem. Uh, right. So, you know, so I've, I've con con contributed to uh, the industry and helping Asia understand you know, what it could look like if people collaborated and had the support that they needed. And after I left MetLife, that's why I got into thought leadership, because the role of media, the role of key opinion leaders and thought leaders is to help motivate individuals. And, you mm. know, I went into fiction first, because if you think about the impact of Star Trek, Isaac Asimov on like space travel, right? Yeah. That's what the industry, our industry really needs is, a uh, big picture motivation on like, where are we going? Right. How do all the parts connect? And that's the thought leadership contributions that I'm making. And it that led to then made the choices as to how I spend my time. Awesome. And and when do you get time to dream? <laughs> Flight, the flights, the flights, the frontiers, you know, from, uh, yeah. you know, the <laughs> Singapore Airlines. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so you know the 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 thing about sleep is actually there's something just this came out on BBC yes uh, this morning that like elderly people need to sleep at least five hours per night. Right. And there's always this like uh, motivation to sleep more, but right. if you look at like the three 
uh, lifestyle risk factors that we can affect ourselves. Right. Uh, nutrition and exercise are like, they're pretty well developed and understood. Right. Sleep is the one where the, the common phrase is, I'll sleep when I'm dead, right? Or I can put <laughs> that off, or I have kids, I have like other things to do, and I have a seven-year-old, yeah. so I have, to, I have to deal with the lack of sleep too. But it's something we should prioritize because it's third of our lives if you do it correctly. Right. So long yep. story short is that I've actually tried to create and instill a really good discipline around getting at least six hours, six and a half hours a night yeah. uh, after I left the U.S. Right. Uh, because when I was in the U.S., I was very much like, I'll just get four and a half hours, one sleep cycle, I'm good, I can keep going. Right. And I started learning more about what I needed to do to take better care of myself after I left. And yeah. that has been a positive influence for me. So before we go into anything serious, oh, sorry, go ahead, Eugene. No, I, I, sorry, man. I just wanted to actually add curiosity, deep sleep. What's your percentage, man? Right. <laughs> Is that where you're going to go? <laughs> no, no, I have something else, no. but close. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, that's the deep sleep is best for you between hours five and a half and eight. Okay. So if you, if you are only getting five hours of sleep, sorry, you're not really getting a high percentage of deep sleep. Okay. So yeah. you really need to, your REM sleep, where all your lucid dreaming and creativity and problem solving happens, happens like 80% of it happens after hour six. So six so, to eight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, shoot. I got to do more of that. And then, yeah. and then, then for a second, just, just for like, and so, and then other than that, so the big, big impacts of deep sleep in those last two hours, what's yeah, going so, on? How's it helping us? Um, so your the, the, the book I would highly recommend is why we sleep by Matthew Walker. Yep. Uh, that's a really good resource. Yep. I will summarize something that he said. And then a couple other ones is that, um, your, your, your sleep during that period of time is helping your subconscious mind and your conscious mind connect more strongly. Okay. We sleep for three reasons, physical recovery, and we've all had really bad nights. So you know what that feels like when you don't get it. And then the other is your subconscious conscious mind connection, which does two things. Uh, it, it helps with your conversion of short-term memories to long-term memories, yep. which is why you dream about childhood friends being in your current environment or vice versa right. and emotional regulation. Okay. So the ability to process what's going on in day to day, it's your subconscious is helping with that. So if you lose awesome. that, you don't get enough sleep. I need all those things. I, I was going to say, Jim, you, you and I just got like a, a whirlwind tour of sleep. So, um, I'm, yeah, I'm, awesome. not, I'm not going out tonight. Um, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> well, wait, wait. Let me ask so, the, so I've got this thing. So I had this thing that when I sleep, when I would sleep and I would have my lucid dreams, I had the capacity to fly. <laughs> the capacity to fly. So it was, this, and I, and I found over the years when I've talked about sleep with people that there's a character type that like, I actually can, and I, I think I got it. What was that book? Um, uh, the galaxy book that we all read as a kid, the, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the, Oh, uh, there was a, there was a, there was a real science fiction book that I assumed you guys would have, but it's like, um, I'll think of it in a second. If I slept better, I'd be able to connect the dots on the name, but the, um, you can put it in the, you can put it in the show notes or the, like, and add it later. Yeah. But it, it was a great book where the, where the guy in the book, it was a book I think a lot of us would have read. And if you were in American schools and, it, um, you know, it's the universe, everything. Uh, yeah. I'll think of it in a second. Anyways, but the, if the guy fell a certain way, right, he would float and then have the capacity to fly. Right. Hmm. This book affected me as a kid. 
and I used to have the capacity. <laughs> so I've talked to other people about this, and other people have. Now I understand it all, Jim. Now I got it all, man. <laughs> that we'll move on to the business now. <laughs> well, I I know we're okay. um, we're we're also somewhat limited on time here, but I wanted to touch on sure. one key topic. I think you know you mentioned, and I'm looking forward to your presentation, Tony. Um, I think tomorrow the day after on public health, right? And uh, you know, public health. Also ties together. I think people throw SDOH around, health equity around. So maybe you can give a little bit of the preview um, on specifically around health equity and how that's intertwined into the public health system. Yeah. Or should be. If there's anything, yeah, exactly. It should be is a good way to phrase it. If there's anything that we can take away from the last few years is that in terms of reinforcing knowledge that should have been at the forefront is that governments alone can't deal with the access problem. And the assumption has been that health systems all over the world, and I use health systems uh, instead of talking about countries uh, mm -hmm. or governments, just because sometimes it gets complicated. Um, so, so health systems around the world have a lot of responsibilities and what they can do, but their funding is dependent on what the government can provide. And let's look at, uh, you know, in Pakistan, there were enormous floods that just happened recently. And I was uh, helping a group that was uh, uh, doing a talk for Roche recently. And she and I, Muniba Mazari is the woman's name. And we were talking about what does access look like and how does the government fund what you need for healthcare? And she's like, look, the reality is that with these floods that just came, if healthcare was number seven on the list, it's now 10 on the list. And whatever money we'd allocated yeah. for healthcare at the government level just got cut by 80%. Yeah. And that's, that's the challenge, right? So we're talking not even just in developing countries, but we're talking about even within developed countries like the US, um, there are pockets of people, some larger groups than others, that get left behind. And the, the cool conversation about health disparities um, can be described in a lot of different ways, health inequality, health inequity, um, you know, there, there are different types of terms and different challenges, but they all kind of boil down to that the, the more challenged you are by having low health literacy, uh, being demographically challenged by living in islands or in rural areas, uh, not having good income levels, whatever those things might be, and there's a whole list of these, uh, the WHO is really good yeah. info on this, you know, those are reasons that we need a different approach. And what inspired me in the direction I'm taking in right now is, as I was doing podcast interviews for Future Proofing Healthcare, which is around personalized health, uh, which is about the innovation that public health is taking from shifting from one size fits all to bespoke or, or per precision medicine, uh, shifting from sick care to prevention. That really just got me go thinking and, and talking to people about the fact that access is not changing. Um, right. And by, by access not changing, it's actually getting worse. So technology needs to be an enabler to improve that. Mm. And so that's the talks I'm giving over the next couple of days. I actually have three different talks um, are, you know, the, the, they're talking about one is H's, the H in healthcare is for humanity. Mm. And it's important that we remember we all have our own stories as to why mm. we chose healthcare. You've heard mine. I, I, I've heard both of yours uh, from your talks. And, you know, everybody has one. We can't forget that. And mm. that's what leads us and guides us down a path. And then my other two talks are around what are these types of innovations where ecosystems are coming together to support public health 
in this journey of innovation where access is first and it needs to be more front and center. Um, and the last comment I'll make on that is that as a result of doing this, I realized that I've had a lot of really great learnings and, and lateral thinking, which is, you know, looking across industries. And that's what inspired me not to write just a few, few articles or, you know, white paper, yeah. but a book around what this change needs to be. And mm. so I will soon be um, releasing some podcasts around this book will be come out next year at some point. Uh, but it's a kind of become rather than just a kind of something I focus on. I now describe that the two areas of healthcare I focus on are personalized health and health equity. And those are my two missions. Awesome. Well, um, I think on, on kind of that note, um, you know, it's a hard mission to follow with the question that usually Jim asks, but I will, I will leave it to Jim to, to try to transform it as much as he can. Right. Right. No, easy. It's easy. Cause you have such yeah, a fascinating background, Tony. And it's like, it's hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. That was oh. the book. <laughs> okay. oh. Now that you the brain it, worked. Like, boom. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, so I mean, like should. that should have so, been our first guess. <laughs> so you're you're walking. You you've just given one of the most amazing uh, talks, and you've inspired a crowd of healthcare entrepreneurs and investors in the beautiful city of Milan. And you're walking outside the El Duomo, and you and you see uh, and you see a young a, a young man walking along, and he is the spitting image of yourself. And and he and he grabs you and he says, Tony, I just heard your talk and. He says, I, you know, listen, I, I'm a little bit like you, except I grew up in Japan and, and lived in Mexico. And then I, and then I went on and became an electrical engineer and, and got a Wharton MBA. And, uh, you know, I did so many things similar to you. And I eventually found, you know, my life, you know, on the other side of the world from where I grew up. And, and I've started this company that's bringing together solar powered cars and lucid dreaming. <laughs> solar powered racing cars <laughs> and lucid dreaming and it's going to transform healthcare in a way you can't possibly even imagine it's almost like a science fiction novel and 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 he looked and he said but if you as i start this company and this venture and this media company and all these beautiful things together what's the one piece of advice you would give that uh young entrepreneur wow uh, mentorship seek out really good mentors uh you know i think it's um it's a fact that we all make mistakes as we build. And uh, so, you know, just try to limit the negative effects of those mistakes and learn from them. But the people that you can surround yourself with that have the experience to share, uh, they will help you navigate and guide through what those might, they might appear and feel like enormous challenges at the time you've made that, that uh, misstep. Uh, but, there's so much that we learn from those missteps to help guide us in the future. And mentors are the ones that can do that for us. Um, and, and especially in the work that I feel like I do in Asia and how we can contribute in that space, I feel like the, the need for pay it forward minded people uh, is especially important in areas where there's gaps of uh, of nascent talent looking and, and desiring that type of guidance. Beautiful. Words of wisdom. Tony, thank, <laughs> thank you. you. And we'll see you in about half an hour. Jim, sounds like see, see you tomorrow. tomorrow. I, didn't, I didn't even know it was a pleasant surprise to find out that you're yeah. going to be here. And yeah, uh, to our listeners and viewers, hit subscribe, pass it on, and see you next week.